I'm in Nuremberg, the second largest city in Bavaria and the 14th largest in Germany. Renowned for centuries as a hub for artisans and craftspersons, it was here, some 550 years ago, that one of the most famous figures of the German Renaissance, artist and theorist Albrecht Dürer, was born on the 21st of May, 1471, to be precise. I'm standing directly outside the house on, appropriately enough, Albrecht Dürer Strasse, where from 1509 onwards, for almost 20 years, Dürer lived and worked. This is not only one of the few surviving burger houses from Nuremberg's Golden Age, but even more significantly, it is the only surviving 15th century artist's house in Northern Europe. It is now a museum, exploring and celebrating the life and works of the man who became the most famous artist that Germany has ever produced. A master of many different artistic styles, Dürer is perhaps most renowned for his intricate woodcut prints, an innovative style of art which allowed multiple faithful copies of artworks to be produced from painstakingly carved wooden blocks. Many of Dürer's woodcuts are held in extremely high esteem, but one in particular is probably his most famous of all, a depiction of what was, at the time of its creation in 1515, to the people of Europe, an animal that was almost unimaginably exotic, mysterious and fantastical. One could almost say mythical. The woodcut in question is the one known as Dürer's rhinoceros, an image based largely on a written description of an Indian rhino. Dürer had never actually set eyes on the real thing. On close inspection, the resulting depiction of the animal is therefore strikingly inaccurate, though nonetheless a stunning and accomplished piece of art, and for many years formed the basis for the standard European idea of what a rhinoceros looked like. My name is Thomas Eser. I am in charge for the municipal museums of the city of Nuremberg, and they do include the Albrecht Dürer House. Here we are at the moment. It's the house where Albrecht Dürer has lived and uh, has spent his life, or most time of his life, and, uh, well, that's where I'm working as an art historian. I'm here to meet Dr. Thomas Eser, director of the city's municipal museums. I'm hoping to learn more about this seminal German artwork and hopefully also to learn more both about Dürer's inspirations for the piece and about the legacy it left across Europe and the wider world. It is a landscape scale sheet of paper with um, a full scale, the touching the, the borders of the sheet of paper, depiction of an animal seen from the side with an a very big head that is put down, looking a bit sad also, and the rest of the sheet of paper is covered by the body, short legs, and well, the most part is the body that is covered by a kind of plate, like an armor of a knight, and the surfaces of these plates, let's say seven or eight different plates, is sprinkled with dots and small forms that give a shimmering experience to that, so that it really looks much more like a cloth than like, like a skin that we can see there. The animal's head is hairy, many hairs on that, and there is a very big horn at the end of the nose, and some other horns at the back that make it's looking really dangerous. Nobody wants to come to next to this animal. Anyway, it looks not very happy, not very aggressive, but more calm. The eyes, white, large eyes, open, a little bit melancholic, but melancholic is too difficult telling it with Dürer. He made another melancholic print, as you know. The inscription is very dominant. There is one dominant inscription. It tells us, Rhinoceros. In big letters, the year 1515 is written above that, and Dürer's monogram, A.D. Albrecht Dürer, below this inscription. And then there is a text with several lines that tells us 
what we should know about this animal. It gives an explanation to this animal that it appeared in Lisbon in this time. This is an actual news Dürer gives with this depiction. Then it describes it in detail. Uh, that is quite big and um, very powerful. And that there is one enemy that the, the rhinoceros has, that's the elephant, and that they do fight together. So for Dürer's single-leaf prints, this is quite a lot of text information he puts into that. Now, is it true that Dürer never actually saw this rhinoceros? We are very well informed about Dürer's journeys. So Dürer never had been in an area in Portugal where we know from this animal had been alive. So Dürer didn't see it uh, personally. He must have had informations on the animal, how it looked like. We do not know where from, but his interest as a publisher, of course, is to tell the truth by an image. He also stresses that. This way a rhinoceros looks like. This is a somewhat different to Dürer's other pieces of art where he often stresses, I have seen it, so I can testify that it really looks like that. In the case of the rhinoceros, Dürer never had this personal experience. So he was going by a description which was written and sent to him, presumably, and some sketches? Yeah. Perhaps there had been sketches because this rhinoceros was very famous in uh, Europe in these days, in these years. Perhaps there was a friend, a Nuremberg merchant that was in Marseille or in Lisbon uh, where the animal uh, in life uh, had been. We do not know exactly the source he had, but he must have had one, a very perfect one. Dürer was not alone in failing to see this or any other rhinoceros. Prior to its arrival in Lisbon in 1515, the last occasion on which a rhinoceros was seen in Europe was during the heady days of the Roman Empire. Dr. Richard Collins. Wouldn't you just love to be there when that animal arrived in Lisbon? It had been on a boat for 130 days, it's estimated. It took all around the Cape good hope an enormous journey that this poor old rhino had gone through but it has arrived in lisbon you can imagine the excitement of that nothing like that had ever been seen in lisbon i mean not since ancient roman times were rhinos seen at all in europe they were brought up to the circus and they were made to fight with, with elephants and things and dreadful things like that back in in ancient roman times but since then there were no rhinos to be seen anywhere in europe it's like a great freak show thing to see this strange animal, kind of with his big horns sticking out of his nose and armour-plated appearance and so on. It must have been quite something to see. And they're not used to spectacles the way we are. The gift of an exotic animal to a head of state was not unusual in the 16th century. Even to this day, diplomatic presents are still exchanged. If you go back to 1972, a famous diplomatic event occurred. Richard Nixon visited China, and it changed relations of the West to China. At that visit, he was presented with two giant pandas, which he took back to Washington, and they lived there for 20 years or more. And he brought two musk oxen to China as a present for, I think it was Chairman Mao at that time. But it was a famous visit. Now, this is in a long line of what nowadays we call panda diplomacy. When a pope was elected, there was a tradition of sending the pope gifts, you see. So, and the Pope got gifts. He got a white elephant at one stage. It's apparently buried in the Vatican Gardens. It lived there for many years. Uh, you had to ingratiate yourself with the Pope because the Pope, after all, conferred your right to be a king. He was God's representative on earth. And if you wanted to be recognized as a king, it was up to the Pope to say you were the legitimate king. So it was important to kowtow to the Pope. So they used to send him presents. 
Now, returning to Durer's rhinoceros, now this rhinoceros was a present from India. It was sent to Manuel I by the Portuguese representative in India as a gift to his king, Manuel I, and it was sent there as a gift. Just as Richard Nixon got a gift from Chairman Mao in our own day, he sent this back to King Manuel in Portugal as a present for his menagerie in Lisbon. So King Manuel then wanted to ingratiate himself with the Pope. So he sent the, or tried to send the rhino on to Rome as a gift for the Pope, as the Pope had a menagerie. But of course, it never got there because it ran into a storm and the ship sank and the poor old rhino perished after all his travels. What a tragic end for the poor creature. To understand why Durer immortalised this rhinoceros the way he did, without ever actually seeing it, and why he was the first artist to do so, we must begin by learning more about the man himself. This is really fascinating that nobody else in Europe had the idea to publish it. (laughs) Why did a Nuremberg artist, of course in this time very famous for his prints, for the authenticity of his prints, use this second-hand information wherever he got it from to make this publication of this animal. It shows us how clever Dürer was by finding news that he could publish via image, not only via text, but also via image, and he took the chance and made this success. We know the rhinoceros was very famous very quickly. Dürer was a commercial artist though, wasn't he? That's true. Dürer was a very individual and self-deciding, commercially thinking artist that achieved a lot of money during his life. At the end of his life, we know he was a millionaire from nowadays' point of view. And he earned this money by selling prints, not so much by selling uh, paintings and no drawings. He made a lot of drawings, famous drawings, as you know, but they were not made for a market. He kept them in his studio for other purposes uh, and functions. So it was mainly his printing portfolio with which he earned a lot of money. In Dürer's lifetime, it is estimated that between four to 5,000 official prints of his rhinoceros were produced. These were intended to be affordable art objects. The relative ease with which a person with an interest in art could encounter one, or even buy one and hang it on their own wall, contributed greatly to Dürer's renown as an artist, as well as to his commercial success. We have about... 1,100 drawings by Albrecht Dürer. This is extremely high amount of drawings. No other artist in Europe, around 1,500, made so many drawings, and they were preserved until today. Dürer's drawings mainly depict small pieces of nature, of everyday life, animals, uh, flowers, forms of mountains and rocks, And there we can learn that he was like a researcher, like a scientist, interested in how nature works when nature itself forms nature. He wanted to understand that. Of course, he used it also later, some of these drawings, to put them into the background of his images. But most of them were really autonomous kinds of natural research. Tell me about his family. What was his background? Dürer had a a background of immigration. Although he is nowadays the most famous German, and some decades ago this Germanness of Dürer was also misinterpreted and misused, uh, the most German of all German artists, he was told. (laughs) Uh, In fact, his father was an an immigrant from Hungary uh, that probably was immigration that was caused by the... Osmanic invasion coming from the east to Hungary. So in the midst of the 15th century, uh, many of these uh, arts and craftsmen from Hungary started to go to the west. His father settled down in Nuremberg in uh, 1454. He was accepted here. Nuremberg was, a, as it is called by urban studies, an arrival city. Everybody that could something do, was a professional in something, was a welcome here in Nuremberg. His father became a goldsmith, very well-known goldsmith. Even the emperor, the Kaiser, 
Aldrich Goldsmith works here. So Durer grew up in a craftsman family, but in a very high-ranking craft. Goldsmith, as you know, they deal with very expensive things, so they were highly accepted in society. Do you think that because he was surrounded by craftsmen, you mentioned his father, I know his brother was a craftsman as well, yeah, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. That influenced the way he depicted the rhinoceros by covering it in armour plating. Durer not only was influenced by metalwork during his times of education, the profession of his father as a goldsmith, his own, the fact that he himself was trained as a goldsmith as a young man, but also in his personal surroundings here, the neighborhood. If you go outside the Dürer house, you see in the neighbor house uh, an armor standing. There was a Platner, how it was called in German, an arm, armor maker. So indeed the f imagination that there is an animal that looks like a, a tank, yeah, <laughs> covered by metal, by, by plate, was very fascinating for this, yeah, always also arms and armor, interested society in Nuremberg. Nuremberg also was a place where many of these arms and armor had been made. Perhaps this was also a reason why he decided to publish this animal. We are in times of armor production, um, using of arms and armor, and maybe, uh, uh, we do not know it exactly. Nowadays, it's considerably easier for the average person to see a rhino for him or herself. But for how much longer? There are currently five different species of rhinoceros in the world, with three found in Asia and the remaining two found in Africa. These are the last survivors of an ancient lineage which stretches back over 20 million years to the Miocene era. Since then, a great many species have come and gone, including here in Europe, where until comparatively recently, woolly rhinos walked with mammoths and giant elk, until climate change and human hunting pressure condemned them to extinction. The species which Dürer depicted, the Indian rhinoceros, is the most populous of the surviving Asian rhino species. That's not saying very much, however. Just three and a half thousand or so are believed to still exist in the wild, confined to pockets of southern Nepal, northern Bangladesh and northern India. Dozens still fall victim to poachers each year. Happily, though, five of them currently reside at Photo Wildlife Park in Cork. Well, I'm here at Photo Wildlife Park. I'm getting to meet uh, a real-life Indian rhinoceros for the first time. I'm coming up to the enclosure now, and hopefully... We'll, oh, wow! <laughs> there is the Indian rhinoceros. Amazing. Incredible. <laughs> I mean, you see it on the television, you hear about it, but actually seeing a real-life one is just incredible. What a privilege. What a privilege. Naturalist Jim Wilson met Sean McKeown, director of Photo Wildlife Park, to discuss the plight of these majestic creatures and the ongoing conservation efforts at Photo and other wildlife parks and zoos to reverse Indian rhinoceros decline and in turn give the species a future. So Sean, when Albrecht Dürer did the drawing of that rhinoceros back in 1515, all he had to go on was a short descriptive note. He might also have had a drawing or, or a simple painting or sketch. And I think we could agree he did a damn good job based on that description. But if you had Albrecht on the phone today and you wanted to make sure he got as good a description as possible for his drawing, how would you describe the Indian rhinoceros to him? Uh, he's a, a very big animal two metres high, four metres long, but the size of a large bull. The um, skin is in folds, and it looks like as if they have been put on with 
bolts onto the body because he's got on the actual folds of skin are big dimples that look as if they were the heads of bolts that have been used to attach this to the to the animal and he certainly has got that atmosphere uh, and there's a lot more of that towards the rear end and the front end of the animal than in, in, in the middle. The other thing is they have one horn so it's it's the Indian rhino is also known as the, the greater one-horned rhino so and also the ears they, they move back and forth and they're almost like a little telescope that will go up and, and, and it moves right back and forward and can turn around and they've got hairs at the end of them. So they're amazingly sensitive. The skin of the animal is also very sensitive because there's a lot of blood supply goes to that and the dimples and the, the folds of the skin help to expand the surface area of the animal so it can cool down quicker in, in, in the heat of the sun. The mouth is the other thing that they have, a, a prehensile upper lip. That means the lip is V-shaped, comes out, and is able to grab leaves and vegetation and uh, put it into his mouth. Why do you have rhinoceroses here in the wildlife park? Rhinos are under threat in the wild, uh, particularly in Asia. The populations of the Sumatran, Javan, uh, are very low. The Javan are down about 50 to 70 animals. The Sumatran, probably around 100. And then the Indian rhino that we have here, there are about 3,300 left in the wild. So not big numbers for a population of um, large mammals like that. About two years ago, that area was subjected to large flooding because of climate change so they they lost a lot of uh, rhinos during that and there are catastrophic events that could potentially from a human point of view and from the actual environment that could virtually wipe out populations as low as that. So, so it's more like uh, money in the bank for yeah. the rhinoceros yeah. species. These are split up in different zoos all over the world. So, if if, if some if something happens in one country, it doesn't necessarily influence them in another. We had a similar situation that happened with um, European bison. They went extinct in the wild. There were a number of them in in Germany and Poland. Lucky enough, they actually survived the Second World War. And from about seventeen founder animals, there's now about three and a half thousand in the wild, of which photo have contributed animals to into Romania, into Poland and other countries. So again, hopefully, the, if the need arose, hopefully you could do the same thing yeah. uh, with the rhino. So, and finally, just following on from that, we, I think we have about five species of rhinoceros in the world. Are you fearful or hopeful for their future? Fearful, very fearful, because none of them are in stable population level. So um, the, the, the largest population are of the, the, the white rhino. There's about uh, 20,000, a little over 20,000 left in the wild. But that has decreased down to 5,000 at one stage. There, with the black rhino, there's only about 5,000, 5,500 left in the wild. And those numbers are also fluctuating a lot. And then, as I said, with the three Asian species of rhino, they are under great pressure because of the human populations that exist in that area. I mean, it's the most densely populated area of the world. And that brings into everything from hunting the animals for the rhino horn to destruction of the habitat that the animals live in. Hopefully in my lifetime, we'll still see these rhinos all in the wild and in self-sustaining populations. So you would have five or 600 of the Javan and Sumatran rhinos and possibly 20,000 of the Indian rhino and 50,000 of the two African species that are left, the black and the white. As Jim Wilson said, it's a privilege to see a real, living, breathing Indian rhinoceros. That's a luxury that Durer never had, but it didn't stop him from immortalising the species, or others for that matter. He made many prints in his lifetime, and numerous copies of his great works still exist, as one of the innovations of the woodcut technique was that multiple iterations could be produced quickly, in a way that allowed Durer's great works of art to be seen far and wide each one embellished with his own personal monogram, A.D.
Albrecht Dürer. This actually led to Dürer becoming embroiled in the world's first copyright dispute. Dürer was not the very first to use a monogram on a piece of no. art, but Dürer was the very first that used it always. Even his earliest etchings and engravings and woodcuts, this monogram was added to so that after some years, uh, European collectors did immediately know this is Dürer made. And this is something he made, yeah, it's kind of marketing, very modern form of marketing. He was the very first one that did this very consequently always when he makes a print. It's important for the value of his prints. Mm -hmm. A seller did know it's by Dürer. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, in Venice, for instance, there had been a faking uh, artists that used his prints and his uh, images not only to copy them, but also they put it the AD on that. Oh. And that, of course, was a criminal act. Not to use it, that would be nowadays so, that copyright is also on content, not only on the, the signature. But in Dürer's time, the signature was the criminal act to imitate that. So he went to court to protect his monogram. Yes, he even uh, found the emperor that gave him a privilege that made it for him sure that he was the exclusive one to use the AD. Also a very modern uh, legislative process. So although people could copy his print and make copies of that and sell them, they couldn't put the AD on it, which signified that this was done by Albrecht Dürer. This is the point. And there we are in European history and a very important point of changing. People started to be interested in who made it. Not in, was it good made, is it good, is it very expensive or cheap? No, the question of authenticity, who is the author, yeah. started to arise. Dürer famously created some truly wonderful images of wildlife. His 1502 watercolour, entitled Young Hare, is a particularly arresting image. It is truly stunning and could only have been painted by an artist with a deep knowledge of his subject and a fascination with nature. Looking at nature for Dürer also means to look into details, to find the limits of the possibility to depict with a very, very small brush all these details, light effects, shadows, the surface of several materials, and the hair, of course, is the most famous one where he really tries to go to the last end of possibility by using smallest brushes to depict on a small piece of hair the the shine of the sun that falls on that and it's extremely minimalistic size and he's proud of that to be able to depict that and these are pieces of art he as far as we know never did sell he made them for themselves to show them other friends other artists and to say, hey, I can it, and you can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so he was a naturalist and an artist. He was both. He was, an, he was an uomo universale, is the Italian expression for that in the times. Somebody who also wanted to become famous, to stay famous by trying to understand the world. In his case, via art, via painting, drawing, others from his neighbors here in Nuremberg did it via writing texts, and Dürer, finally, at the end of his life, also wanted to be an author writing books. As you know, he, he mm. started to write his theoretical books on art. While making this programme, I got perspectives on Dürer's work from artists and historians. But it would be out of character if I didn't also seek the opinion of another one of our natural history experts, ornithologist Niall Hatch. I obviously love birds and I'm really interested in some of the bird um, paintings and other artworks that Dürer did. He did particularly fine studies of the bullfinch, a really charming little bird that many of us have in our, in our gardens and around our homes. He did a particularly nice study of the jay, the colourful crow as we often call it, uh, really capturing the, the essence of that bird, showing the vibrancy of the colour in its wings. But actually I think his finest work of all, beats the others hands down, isn't a bird at all, it's actually a mammal. He did a wonderful study of a hare which is an absolute master 
masterpiece. You could actually put this in a field guide today and it would put many modern artists to shame. And this is something that was done in the 1500s. It's actually mind-blowing. He has this, this study of this hair. He has the motion of the hair frozen in the artwork in his painting. Every brushstroke carefully chosen. And he's just captured the essence of that animal. It has this glint in its eye as well, this catch light that photographers would often use. There's something almost photographic about it. And it's very different in style to the rhinoceros, which of course was a woodcut. The hair was done as a painting. It just shows what a master he was of very different styles and how he was able to capture the essence of the animal. So I think he was really ahead of his time. I think he would be somebody that modern artists could certainly learn a lot from when it comes to depicting natural history. Now, we don't know whether or not Dürer actually painted the hair in the studio or in real life out out in in the countryside. Of course, back then, people didn't have access to the same optical equipment that we have today. People didn't have binoculars and telescopes that would work in the field and we could use to watch animals today. So it may well be that he could have painted the animal from a dead specimen. That was often what artists did at the time. They would have a hair that had been shot and would paint it from that. But having said that, even if he did do that within the studio, it's very clear that this was a man who had studied the hair in life because he has the twitch of its muscles down. He has the poise, right? This is a hair that's poised to leap away from the observer. So he's captured that moment in time perfectly. There's been a lot of speculation actually overlooking at that light in the animal's eye because when you zoom in on it, you actually see there's a bar going through the middle of it that makes it look very much like it's the frame of a window. And so that would make sense perhaps that if he had painted that indoors that he would have used the illumination from the window and that's caught in the animal's eye. Now obviously Dürer would have been well aware of that. He made a conscious choice to paint that bar of the window frame in the animal's eye. So perhaps he was telling us, perhaps he was saying that this is something that I have painted indoors. He didn't do it as a mistake, clearly. The man was a, was, was a genius when it came to art. So that's very deliberate. Uh, we'll never be able to speak to him about it, ask what his motivation was, uh, but he may be sending us a message there. Dürer and his rhinoceros in particular have struck a chord with many artists. For example, Salvador Dali was drawn to it and indeed had a lifelong obsession with rhinos. He considered the rhino's horn to be the essential basis of every chaste and violent aesthetic. And in 1955, while painting a study of rhino horns, even attempted to get a rhino to destroy a poster of Vermeer's masterpiece, The Lacemaker, another lifelong obsession of the Catalan surrealist. Dürer's rhinoceros continues to inspire artists to this very day. One contemporary Irish artist who has been deeply influenced by it is Elizabeth Taggart, to the extent that she has even found a way to incorporate a faithful reproduction of it in one of her works, entitled Dürer's Rhinoceros and the Greyhound. Come in, Derry. Mooney goes wild. You're in the right place now. Recently, Elizabeth's striking painting was up for auction at De Vere's Art Auction House on Kildare Street in Dublin. And it was there I met with John De Vere White, director of the auction house. And all the auctions online now, are they? Well, they're online at the moment and it seems to suit the vendors and it seems to suit the buyers. Plenty of time to consider where they're going to put their money and we found it uh, and, and very, very successful. Well, now, I'm not here to talk about your business per se, but thank you very much nonetheless. I'm here to see a particular painting. Can you show it to me, please? There it is on the wall, Elizabeth Taggart, hanging right there on the wall. You're the first person to see it, apart from the staff here in the office. It came down to us from our studio in the north, and we're thrilled to have it. Uh, she's an artist that we've been particularly keen on for many, many years. We give an award in the RHA every year, and many, many years ago I was up looking at all the paintings, deciding where to, you know, to give our award that year. And I saw one of Taggart's works on the wall, and I was bowled over. We gave her the award, and then I went up to see her. She lives up in Northern Ireland. And for many, many years now, I've done my best to, to try and introduce the Irish public to her art, because I think she's a real original. Elizabeth's reproduction of Dürer's Rhinoceros stands at the bottom centre of her painting, framed by the legs of two ornately dressed, seated ladies. It could be easily overlooked in a casual glance at the painting, but once spotted, the eye is unerringly drawn to it, so that eventually it seems to dominate the entire image. It's a large oil, five foot by four foot. It's very ornate. 
two fantastical looking young ladies sitting on a on a sofa she's made their legs of the sofa are sort of human legs with shoes on on the right hand side of the painting you can see the greyhound hiding behind a lady's skirt and one of his legs just coming down and beautifully balanced between the two ladies legs is Dürer's rhinoceros looking fairly menacing now, when you look at this work of art, it's not the first thing you see that rhinoceros, is it? Because it is quite small. No, it is quite small. And to be quite honest, I didn't pay an awful lot of attention to the rhinoceros because there's so much else going on in the painting and there's so much colour that you sort of move from the top of the painting down to the bottom and you see the greyhound really on your right before you come to the rhinoceros. What do you think of it? Look, I think she's a magical painter. As I told you, I've admired her work for a long, long time, and I'm delighted that we've been able to prize from her collection works that she regards as very, very significant and important in terms of what she's produced. You know, I think it's really top, top quality. I travelled north to scenic Donaghadee Harbour in County Down to meet with Elizabeth Target herself. We're just going in here. This is where the uh, main creative process is. I wanted to know when she first discovered Dürer and why she decided to put his rhinoceros into her painting. Uh, well, originally it would have been in some old volume, encyclopedia, whatever. And it was originally, I think, the self-portrait of him as a very young man with a cascading, wonderful reddish gold hair which my father had a similar colour hair but he didn't have the cascading locks and I just loved that portrait I loved his draftsmanship and his skill technique and having Professor Anne Cruikshank who was a wonderful lecturer when I was at the art school and uh, over the years one simply realised just what a genius he was there are some greats and then there are some geniuses I think he's probably a genius and of course, wonderful drawings of plants and flowers and animals. And then amongst that, I would have seen the rhinoceros. But it was only years later when I was in the British Museum once looking at it and then find in their gift shop this lovely china mug, the print on it, which I brought back and stuck my paintbrushes in for many years. don't think I ever actually drank coffee out of it. When you started this painting, had you always intended to put Dürer's rhinoceros in it? Because I had done the previous one with Rembrandt's elephant and a Jack Russell, the Jack Russell was much bigger than the elephant, I did want to follow up that theme, and the only other equivalent artist that I could think of was Dürer. The rhinoceros in that painting is the smallest being in the painting, Well, a rhinoceros in reality would be the largest being. But there he is. There is only one known work of Dürer's that has a direct connection to Ireland. Irish Peasants and Soldiers was created by Dürer in 1521. So my name is Dr. Catherine Bond and I'll be convening today's session. I'd like to give a warm welcome to everyone who's joined us today for the webinar 500 Years of Albrecht Dürer's Irish Peasants and Soldiers. In September of 2021, to mark the 550th anniversary of the great German master's birth, and the quincentenary of the work itself. University College Cork hosted a special webinar entitled 500 Years of Albrecht Dürer's Irish Peasants and Soldiers. So it was in 1521 that the German Renaissance master Albrecht Dürer composed his drawing of a group of five soldiers, um, five Irishmen. And he described the group in an accompanying caption, quote, Thus go the soldiers in Ireland on the far side of England. Thus go the peasants in Ireland. Dr Hiram Morgan is an historian in the History Department in University College Cork. His book, Ireland 1518, Archduke Ferdinand's visit to Kinsale and the Dürer Connection, gives us a great insight into the origin of Irish peasants and soldiers. Well, the image is a famous colour and ink drawing of three Irish soldiers followed by two Irish peasants. And they're, they're armed to the teeth uh, with big swords, bows and arrows, 
and uh, sort of bill hooks or chopping devices w- which the peasants have. Uh, and it's a, it's a lovely image and one, as I say, which has been in many of our school books. And we've really um, wondered about it for a long time. The problem is it was originally taken as representing real Irishmen, but that's certainly not the case. Uh, it was thought to have been created in Antwerp, which uh, Albrecht Durer visited in 1520 and 1521. And it was a cosmopolitan city. But there were really no Irish soldiers there at the time. He may have seen some sort of parade of people dressed up in Antwerp. But more than likely, he put the image together when he returned back to Nuremberg, which was his hometown, in the middle of 1521, because the image is dated 1521. And it is an um, image which really suggests his interest in the exotic. It is a representation. It's not a drawing from life, because it actually states that thus go the Irishmen behind England, thus go the Irish peasants. So consequently, it does not say these are the Irish peasants, these are the Irish soldiers. Uh, so it is a representation, a visualisation, if you like, of them, what he thinks they would look like. Why would he be making a drawing of Irish peasants and Irish soldiers in the first place? And when you say Irish soldiers, did we have an army back in 1520? <laughs> well, we had very distinctive soldiers, Gallo, Glass and Kern, and the Irish soldiers were quite different from ones elsewhere. So they were quite exotic, and that was a reason to draw them. Now, I think this image came about as a result of a visit that Habsburg prince made to conceal in 1518, three years before Albrecht Durer did this drawing. Habsburg Prince Ferdinand was blown into conceal in a storm and he was going from Spain to the Netherlands. One of his staff made a brilliant description of the Irish at that period. And one of the interesting things that this man, Laurent Vital, who who wrote that account, is his description of the central figure in Durer's drawing, this man with the, the Irish mantle, And that could almost be a description from Laurent Vital's account of Conceal in 1518. And also these two more bucolic figures, these peasants, are also similar, especially their haircuts, which Laurent Vital describes sort of Jedward-style haircuts (laughs) that these guys have. Because this description is once again represented almost exactly in Albrecht Durer's image. My theory is that Albrecht Durer had gone on his visit to the Netherlands from his hometown of Nuremberg to petition the Habsburg royal family to get his pension paid back in Nuremberg. That's why he went on this trip. And the interesting thing is, coinciding with Albrecht Durer's return to Nuremberg is also when Archduke Ferdinand himself goes to Nuremberg at the exact time that Albrecht Durer returns there. So the man who had been in Conceal goes to Nuremberg at the exact time that Durer... So they sit down, have a cup of coffee, whatever, have a chat. He says, guess where I was? I was in this place called Ireland. Perhaps. And we met these guys. Oh, what do they look like? This is what... So he made this, you think based on that description. But who did he make it for? For himself? Or was it gifted to somebody? Or was it commissioned? No, actually, he was interested in in exotic things, just like your rhinoceros, which you've been studying on on this programme, his famous walrus, which he he draws at this time. But these were often things that he himself had not seen. Uh, He was visualising them. He was an artist. He was a, a great imagineer, as it were. Like, for instance... His four horsemen of the apocalypse, famously drawn. He did not see the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but he had the vision and the wherewithal to draw these things. But he must have had sources. He must have had some idea, mm. like the description of the rhinoceros which had been passed on to him, which had arrived in Lisbon. And similarly, it's with the, the Irish soldiers. Like, uh, for instance, the man carrying the bow, there's a Turkish bow described in um, Laurent Vital's account in Conceal. In fact, Albrecht Durer had already drawn a Turkish bow, uh, and so he simply used it again mm. in this drawing. He had already drawn the big sword, which this man at the front, in the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, he simply puts it into mm. the drawing. And like, for instance, also, 
one of the Irish pests is, is carrying a horn, but this isn't an average cow horn. This is a buffalo horn. And in fact, if you read Albrecht Durer's visits to the Netherlands, he actually buys Indian buffalo horns on that visit as curiosities. And once again, he could have brought those back to Nuremberg and he puts them all in a picture in Nuremberg because in fact, this Nuremberg picture is in color. Almost all of the stuff done during the journey to the Netherlands is in black and white. It's in chalk or ink, but this is in color. And the one reason why this is done in Nuremberg rather than Antwerp is because Nuremberg is the center of the European armaments industry. So basically, Albrecht Dürer only had to go down the road and get all this weaponry. The weaponry did not come from Ireland. So they may not have even had it or anything like it for that. Oh, matter. no, the Irish imported uh, German weapons because oh, wow. those were the ones to have. They were the Kalashnikovs of their day. Yeah. Uh, and the one thing that Dürer could have had, which was Irish, was an Irish mantle, uh, which Irish mantles were imported onto the continent. They were like a poor man's fur coat of the day. Uh, so Irish mantles were, were not uncommon or called Irish rugs or Irish mantles. And that's what the man in the centre of the, the, uh, the drawing is wearing. Uh, so this is a composite drawing of a variety of sources, some of the stuff that Albrecht Dürer already has, and some stuff which comes from accounts of Ireland, which I think is Lauren Vital's account, which he wrote to explain uh, Ferdinand's visit to Conceal. So you have studied this image many times over the yes, years. Yes, yes. Is it an accurate representation of the people in Kinsale at that time, do you think now, based on what you've just said to me? No, no, this isn't an accurate representation of the, the people in Kinsale, but I think it was a bloody good effort. And is it his only connection to Ireland? It is. This is the only thing he executed in relation to Ireland. But the interesting thing is that in this case, we've got one up in England because he, 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 he did not do anything about England. And in fact, the only time he uses the word England is in the uh, legend or caption to this drawing where he says, these are the Irishmen in Ireland behind England. That's the only time he uses the word England. I'm enthralled with Hiram's explanation. And now I really want to see the original drawing. But where is it? The original uh, drawing is now in the Kupferstick cabinet in Berlin. It's a famous uh, museum of drawings and prints in, in Berlin. And I had the honour of being shown it by one of the archivists there, uh, Michael Roth. And it, it, it was a pleasure to see it. It's actually quite a, a small thing. It's uh, about half a page in size. Uh, but it is beautifully executed. And the colour is still vibrant after 500 years. Maybe they'll gift it to Ireland, to UCC. <laughs> well, maybe. But they did allow it to come to the um, Chester Beatty exhibition in 2005. And that's where my uh, curiosity was sparked about it, because those were the, sort of the days before the Internet. Mm. And y you couldn't compare things so readily on the Internet. But the remarkable thing is you had on one wall, you had Dürer's Irishman. And then on the other world, you had all these other prints. And actually, I could go and look at the print of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and see that the same sword and the same bow was in Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And you think, well, this isn't that real, actually. Uh, this is some sort of visualisation or representation. We know many things about Albrecht Dürer. He was a brilliant artist. Of that, there is no doubt. He was also a trained craftsperson in his own right. But we also know that he didn't create his famous rhinoceros woodcut entirely on his own. He drafted the original artwork, certainly, but the painstaking and vitally important task of actually carving the woodblock itself would have fallen to a specialist called a form schneider or form cutter. This work required a high degree of skill and artistic ability. So, who was the true artist responsible for the image of the rhinoceros? Dürer or the Formschneider? Or could it be said that the finished work represents an artistic collaboration between them both? Dr Thomas Eser. We know from sources, Dürer pays these persons, uh, he gives money to them, uh, uh, 
that there was a, in German, it's the Formschneider, the form cutter. Very specialist profession, um, a person that were able uh, to use sharp instruments to cut the depiction. Durer, perhaps by himself, was drawing onto the plain surface of the wood. Then afterwards, the Formschneider took the knife and cut it to, to make the print, mm -hmm. yeah, the print form. This, of course, brings us to the question, who made this print? Is it the Formschneider or is it Dürer? Uh, Formschneider's uh, rhinoceros sounds yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, this, indeed. Uh, there is some discussion in art history if Dürer maybe by himself also used sometimes the knife and did the prints. It's a, a dark field of research, I have to confess. But since we know he paid money for an employee of Formschneider, we have to assume there's, this was a teamwork to make these prints. But only his monogram went on it. Only his monogram went on it. And frankly spoken, an author nowadays who writes a novel and gives it to a publishing company that makes the print perhaps is also the, the, this authenticity question, I think is, it's quite right to give Dürer the honor to have made it. Yeah. Mm. How important is this print today? How important was it back at the time he did it? Neil McGregor, director of the British Museum for a long time, when he was asked what is his most important, most important piece of art in the British Museum, he gave the answer. Finally, he decided Durer's rhinoceros. Why? He argues, here we can find so many of elements of success, of progress in art, of media questions, of uh, the relationship producer, artist, and publicity person that do consume that, that are very modern, although this is 500 years old. We have the question, what is an artwork indeed? What makes an artwork? Is it exclusively the fact that it exists only one times, that it's very expensive, or can art also be produced in a series? What is the case there? What quality of information a piece of art should have? Dürer decides to make it a kind of newspaper. This is much more a newspaper than a piece of art. He tells us like an illustrated uh, breaking news. We, we know from today where the image is often also more important than the text, we have to <laughs> confess. This is something very specular new. This happens at the moment, at the end of Europe, far away. There is this animal we knew about from classical texts, but we have never seen. We doubted if this animal really exists. Yes, now we know it. It is also a source for the dynamics of the early 16th century when new parts of the world more and more get known to a European uh, society. So breaking news by telling natural uh, phenomenons is something that also starts with the rhinoceros. So it has so many aspects, though it is a quite humble and often existing piece of paper uh, can be associated with this print. Unlike Dürer, we know exactly what rhinos look like. We know what they need in order to live, and we know that they are in serious trouble. We need to act now to ensure their survival. Dürer's rhinoceros is unquestionably magnificent. But if it becomes merely a representation of yet another species that we humans have condemned to oblivion, it will represent a tragedy. Mooney Goes Wild is presented and produced by Derek Mooney. Email mooney at rte.ie.